Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Why are there so few women in Boris Johnson's cabinet? And why is the Conservative Party struggling to attract more female MPs? Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. If you look like a government that is only interested in having men at the senior level, only having men in the decision making, then you are an unequal government and you are promoting inequality. And that is the wrong place to be for the British government. In this interview special, I'm joined by Amber Rudd, the former Home Secretary and Equalities Minister. We'll be discussing why the Tories are lagging behind when it comes to female representation in Parliament and whether a macho culture around Boris Johnson is to blame. Miss Rudd was first elected as the MP for Hastings and Rye in 2010, later entering the Cabinet as Energy and Climate Change Secretary, then Home Secretary, before she was forced to resign over the Windrush scandal. She briefly returned as Work and Pension Secretary last summer, before leaving the Cabinet in the autumn of 2019 and Parliament in the winter. Amber, thank you very much for joining us on Payne's Politics. Pleasure to be here. So you've had plenty of opportunities coming in and out of the cabinet to adjust to backbench life, post-ministerial life. But how has post-MP life been? And what was the thing that surprised you the most after going from MP back to civilian life? It takes a while to kind of, um, (laughs) I'm afraid detox is the word I'm going to say. Um, You can't go from that high octane, always on feeling to just switching off. You travel with the anxiety and the constant pressure, even though it's not there for quite a while. But I want to reassure you, Seb, that I'm quite relaxed now. So, Amber, at the moment, there are just six female ministers in Boris Johnson's cabinet, about 27%. That's actually down from when you were in the cabinet under David Cameron. You've said quite publicly this is a problem. Why do you think it's an issue? Well, first of all, you start from the fact that better decision-making is made by a group of people who are diverse. And if you don't have women at the table, you have poorer decision-making. So there's that just factual statement that I'm going to make that is evidenced by all sorts of research. But secondly, it's an issue of equality. If you look like a government that is only interested in having men at the senior level, only having men in the decision-making then you are an unequal government and you are promoting inequality. And that is the wrong place to be for the British government. So when you say you're making that as a factual statement, what kind of things can you say to back it up that having more women results in better policymaking? Well, fortunately, there's been oodles of research done in this. It's not just government that has 
had this experience throughout the world, but also businesses. Businesses now recognise that if they have a diverse group of board members, they are more likely to have better decision making. So it's logical, but it's also now factually backed up. Well, one thing you could look at is that lots of countries with female leaders, Germany, Taiwan, Finland, New Zealand, seem to have been deemed internationally to have had relatively good coronavirus crisis, if you could say that. Do you think that's something about the fact they're female or just maybe that they're just very good and competent at what they do? (laughs) I think it is reasonable to infer that some of those characteristics about women, about wanting to build teams, about being consensual in their approach, has a positive outcome for the residents of the countries they lead. Now, Liz Truss, who is your successor as the Equalities Minister, said that, quote, an excessive focus on gender does disservice to women and she doesn't like tokenism. Now, that echoed the words famously said by Margaret Thatcher, where she always used to say, you have to promote on merit. What do you say to that kind of approach as opposed to yours? I think that Liz is misinterpreting what I'm saying. I want to reassure Liz that nobody would suggest that she was promoted on anything but merit. And nobody wants tokenism. We just want talented women to have the same access to good jobs as the men have. And anything else is unequal. Now, during the Downing Street press conferences, which we had throughout the coronavirus crisis, they've been paused for the moment, but they're coming back later in the year as a regular daily feature to Westminster Life. Politico did an analysis and found that 97% of the press conferences were led by men. I think Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, was one of the few women who frequently appeared at those conferences. Why do you think someone, for example, Therese Coffey, didn't appear at those press conferences? You know, her portfolio at work and pensions was absolutely central to the government's response to COVID-19. I think Therese Coffey and DWP have done a fantastic job in such a difficult time. I think it's extraordinary, Sebastian, extraordinary. 97% are represented by men. And what's extraordinary is that nobody's objecting, they should, and that the Prime Minister's inner team haven't noted this and tried to learn from it and do something about it. I think it is wrong. It looks bad, but it also it's not just about what it looks like. It is bad. I'd like to hear from Therese Coffey. I'd actually quite like to hear from Liz Truss on any of these matters, really. They're also keeping her well under wraps. And I think it's a terrible mistake. And you can only conclude that this government's default position is to trust and work with men. And that every now and again, they wake up, they think, oh, my God, what are we going to do about the women? Quick, get me a woman on the next presentation. And that approach to women as a kind of inconvenient extra is not the way to handle half the population. We should just be having people, as as you said earlier, the best person for the job. People should be representing the government, not just men, and then, oh shit, where are the women? So my point is, it's not about saying, bring the women in. It's about stop keeping them out. How much do you think this is about the Prime Minister personally? You know, last summer, when he was running for the Conservative Party leadership, you said, I think he's part of a cult of the strong man. There is an alpha male thing. Women want someone who's a little more thinking about strategy, the phase do or die, which was his approach to leaving the EU on October 31st, which actually didn't happen, as it turned out, is a very male approach. Do you think that attitude that you described then has continued in government for Mr Johnson? Yes, I do. I mean, you can see that his government is run by a very tightly held group of men. It's not unusual that it's run by a tight group, but this has taken it to another step. So the fact that it is Boris, 
Michael Gove and Dominic Cummings as this triumvirate who run the government, basically, and who are constantly concentrating power in their hands. It is, of course, an all-male group, but that you've then got around them very few women. So it's not just the top level of cabinet, but it's also the other advisors, the chief of staff. It's just so dominated by men. I don't know how you can conclude anything else but to say the prime minister is clearly more comfortable with men and is promoting men and hugging them close. And then running after the old woman to make sure that he's got somebody to say, we have got some women included as well. Well, you wrote recently in The Telegraph that when you were appointed to his cabinet back in the summer of last year, you mentioned the equalities brief and the look across his face meant that he'd clearly forgotten all about it. So that sort of speaks to that point. Yes. I mean, it was, a, of course, a big day. But yeah, my position now, which has changed since I held the brief myself, is that the Women in Equalities Department should be its own department rather than constantly moved around. The thing is about inequality of any type, whether it's on race or on gender or on other issues, it's a constant operation. You've got to make sure that you're constantly trying to build the pipeline, check yourself, ensure that you haven't got an all-white male cabinet, constantly be vigilant about it. And If you're going to do that, you need people to help you do that. And that's why I think we should have a department which is separate, so that when the Prime Minister, if he does, moves around the Women and Equalities Brief, it's not an afterthought. There is, of course, an argument that maybe it shouldn't be a department and should just be a part of everybody's briefs um, across the Cabinet. I've heard some people suggesting that. Yes, I mean, you could, I mean, that's kind of what it is at the moment. It's a sort of hybrid, so that when you get questions into Parliament, it's usually a representative from each relevant department has to come along to help answer the questions. But again, the problem with that is that it doesn't have any heft. You know, when you're sitting around cabinet, or when you're in a cabinet committee, the cabinet minister or the minister makes the case for their department. This is why we might need the money. This is why Amendment A is unacceptable. Somebody owns it, represents it, and bats for it. And if you have the Women Equalities Brief as an add-on to other people, it'll be an add-on in their priorities. Now, this is not only just a problem within the Johnson government and the cabinet. When you look to the wider Conservative Party, the number of women pales in comparison to other parties. Currently, just under a quarter of Conservative MPs are female, compared to over half of the Labour Party. Do you find that embarrassing at all? I do. I find it very embarrassing. I mean, I used to get up when I was a minister at the dispatch box and in front of me was what represented society, the Labour Party with men and women, with people from different, obviously from different parts of the country, different classes, but mainly they just looked different and looked representative of the country. And behind me and alongside me, it was just too homogenous. And that looks the case often now. David Cameron made a huge effort to try to get more women into the party. And Theresa May co-founded Women to Win with Anne Jenkin, which drove more women candidates into the party. They both made a huge effort to try to change that and made some progress. 2010, when I came in, I think the 30% of the new MPs were women. So it was a big step forward from where it had come. David Cameron changed the selection rules so that all selections for conservative winnable seats, which is what I was in, had to interview at least half men, half women, because a lot of women weren't even being given interviews. That changed the dynamics. It has to be constantly worked at. 
And the person who's continued to do so well on that is Anne Jenkin. But if we're going to continue to make progress, Prime Minister needs to make it a priority. And also as chairman. I mean, where are the chairmen saying we need to do something about this? And I know what a lot of people answer when I talk about this. They say, not now, dear. We've got bigger things to do. But actually, if you don't get on it now, you won't be ready for it at the next general election. Well, Boris Johnson himself has said he would like to see a much higher proportion of female Tory MPs, as he told a parliamentary committee last year. Yes, I mean, it's easy to say it, but what are you going to do about it? Are you going to change the selection procedure like David Cameron did? Are you going to make it a mandate? There are two chairmen at the moment for the Conservative Party. Make it the mandate for one of them to do this. Like, let's make it a real priority for the party and it will reap benefits. You'll get better quality of women coming in because you'll get far bigger applications of people wanting to join. And then when he comes to make his promotions, there will be more women from which to choose. It'll be more normal. What I want to see is the Conservative Party normalising having women rather than saying, whoops, where are the women? Let's go and find some. And here's the rub as well, Seb, is that if it carries on like this, looking like a male government and a male cabal telling people what to do, then women will turn away. So the lower numbers that we have at the moment will be as nothing compared to the applicants that come through in future. You have to look like a party, a government, that has an approach that is based on equality, that women are not an afterthought. They are part of the decision-making, part of the government, and they are, of course, welcome. And if you continue to look all male, that will fall away. Well, I spoke to a young female Tory friend of mine who has sort of flirted with running for parliament a couple of times. And she raised two things. First of all, you mentioned Women to Win there, which was set up by Theresa May in the 90s to get more Conservative MPs into parliament. And that has had great success over many years. But this person questioned to me, has Women to Win in some respects just been a PR exercise? There's a lot of people who've wanted to look as if they're pro-female equality have jumped on this bandwagon, yet there are some still structural issues in the party. So the assessment board you have to do to become a Conservative MP, people have raised questions about whether that is biased in a certain way. And then you talked about how David Cameron made sure that you had to have shortlists with females on, but a lot of Conservative associations just simply aren't choosing female candidates. Listen, Women to Win is part of the solution. It's absolutely not the whole solution. Tell your friend to come and talk to me and I will be happy to set out for her the pros and cons of why she should try to do it, which I hope she would, because the whole thing must be about encouraging men and women to try to become an MP. You have to have an appeal to them. And the fact that so many young men and women look at the Conservative Party now and say, you know, the economic values, the social values, they are pretty much in line with what I think. But am I welcome there? is a real problem. And Women to Win, you know, it gave training, it gave money to candidates. It did an important job, but you can't outsource an organisation's drive for equality. That has to be driven from the top and the Prime Minister needs to be the person to do that. One easy way to solve this would be introducing some kind of gender quotas and all-female shortlist, which is something the Labour Party did, which was heavily criticised by the Conservatives, but we're now at a place where over half their parliamentary party is female. So is that the way forward? I think that if you go to all-women shortlists, you have given up on driving equality root and branch through your organisation. You could do it, and I do look at Labour with envy that they have so many women at the top of their party as a result. But I worry that you haven't embedded it in the associations, in the selection procedures, 
because you're just obliging them to do it rather than saying, by the way, here's 50% men, 50% women for you to select from. And now we know you'll just select the best candidate, which I felt was where David Cameron was beginning to get the party to. So I feel that all women shortlists are a bit of a sort of pop out. But as I get older and older, Sebastian, I become more and more cynical about the ability of the Conservative Party to reform, to do the right thing and stop being the place where women are the exception rather than part of the norm. Well, if you looked at what happened at the last election, some of the party's most senior female MPs decided to walk away. So that's including yourself, Nikki Morgan, the former Culture Secretary, Claire Perry, former party chairman, Caroline Spellman, former minister, Caroline Noakes, described the government's problem as institutional thoughtlessness. And it's about who shouts the loudest that if the Conservative Party did really care about these issues, then it wouldn't have allowed these people just to walk away. I agree with that. I would add Margot James. And it's not just that they allowed them to walk away. In some cases, they were basically part of the purge. And it was an approach that was totally new and was part of the single-mindedness of Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings on Brexit. They wouldn't brook other people's views. So they casually allowed people with substantial experience gifted people, not including myself here, I'm not doing that, to just be lost. And I think that the party and indeed government is poorer for it. But I think there's a wider truth here too, which is the nature of the way this government operates in campaigns, and we will see, less so in government, but um, certainly in campaigns, is to be very confrontational. You're either with me or against me. And if you're against me, you're the enemy. And that was very much the type of driving force we saw last year over Brexit and into the general election. And I think that comes back to my earlier point about how women leaders operate, really. We tend to operate on a much more consensual basis. I hope still tough. I hope still showing leadership, but not saying, if you're against me, you're my enemy and you need to leave. Trying to win people, hold them together, and really get a better result. Well, I spoke to someone who knows the Prime Minister and works with them pretty closely, and they said that loyalty is the single attribute that he values the most. And I think this was said in public when Boris Johnson was asked, you know, what's your favourite scene in your favourite film? And he said, it's at the end of The Godfather 2 with all the retribution killings. And that was seen as a joke. But actually, in fact, I think it reflects something about his characteristic and those who advise him and serve around him. And when you look at the cabinet and you look at the advisors in the government, the one thing that links them all together is that they are totally loyal to Mr Johnson. Yes. And I think that's a mistake. I mean, I think it's a mistake for good government. It's a mistake for the other cabinet ministers. I can see it's quite nice for Boris and Dominic, <laughs> but I don't think cabinet ministers should check their consciences at the door. It is your duty and your job to raise your voice, to have things discussed and argued, and then, you know, to have a consensus decision at the end of it. Let's come back to some of my colleagues, heroin. Margaret Thatcher, she liked a good fight in a cabinet too. That is off the menu now. And I think to prize loyalty over everything else, and it's not really loyalty, it's total obedience, is a bit dispiriting and I don't think it makes for good government. 
And just to finish the issue on the representation of female MPs in Parliament, abuse has played a lot into this, that the amount of hatred that some female MPs received, particularly during the worst of the Brexit travails. How was it for you? Did you find yourself on the receiving end, a lot of hateful stuff on social media and elsewhere? I did. You know, again, a reason why I left government last year was the intent was to stir up divisions in order to create the separation that led to Boris's victory. So it worked. But I think the stirring up of people to be angry with each other is uh, the wrong approach, wrong for a country, wrong for a democracy. And I certainly got my fair share, I, a huge amount, of abuse, of threats. I don't know any senior MPs who didn't have a death threat at some stage, which were not just one sent by email or by Twitter, but which will have led to a serious prosecution at some stage. And I was certainly in that category. That is pretty unpleasant and concerning, not just for the individual, but for your whole family. But I would come back to when I speak to, I go around and speak to quite a lot of schools and colleges still, young women, particularly, as you can imagine. And even though I answer that question very frankly, and there's always a sharp intake of breath and usually somebody saying, how can you bear it? I then tell them the things you can achieve. And I look at, you know, somebody like Carolyn Harris, who, as you know, I'm sure, brought in the Child Funeral Fund, an extraordinary thing she achieved. And there are lots of examples of like that. I'm thinking particularly of women, but where you can achieve something extraordinary as a backbencher and certainly much more as a minister, make it all worth it. There may, of course, be some young female Tories who will look at people like you and like Nikki Morgan and the list of all the other people we said and saw that they decided to leave politics relatively young in their career, where there's a lot of time left and say, well, if they're not going to stay around for a longer period, then maybe I shouldn't bother going in at all because they found it too difficult. They found the abuse too horrific and they found it too much of a struggle to get anywhere. But I don't think the abuse is a reason to leave. And I don't want people ever to think that. I think Tony Blair said quite recently that he wouldn't want any of his children going into politics because of the abuse they receive. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. But I think the abuse is bad and you have to develop a bit of a thick skin about it. But there's also something else going on in politics, which is fairly new, which is people like me and Nikki Morgan, Claire Perry, Margot James, we all came and went in 10 years which is a kind of a new theme, really, in politics. And some people think it's rather unhealthy because they like the idea of going into politics and staying for life. And in opposition or in government, you bring that experience, and I can respect that. But for some of us, the sort of the 10-year part of our life to do that has been, I think, a fantastic opportunity to find out about politics, to drive the change on the agenda you really care about, and to get out just... <laughs> intact with your values in place and not having been crushed by it. And I think that's a reasonable thing to do. And you actually came into politics relatively late. It was in your late 40s when you were first elected to Parliament then. And some other female Tories I've spoken to have said, in fact, they think that will become more of a trend because people want to have their families, have their careers first. The idea of being in Parliament with a young child is particularly unappetising. But that in itself has a knock-on effect of female representation in the Cabinet. It does, except that all us female MPs, not all, but a lot of us who came in in our 40s in 2010, did disproportionately well. And I don't think that's a coincidence. It's not because 
you know, oh, they're women, they're bound to get on. You've always got a few people saying that. It's because we were all women with significant private sector experience, some confidence as you do develop when you become older, and we weren't entirely dependent on success in politics. So there's quite a lot of people who become MPs to whom getting promoted is everything because they've made it their life. But for us, and you can see because we've now left and gone in to do other things, it wasn't the be-all and end-all, but it meant a lot. And we managed to achieve a lot. And we became quite a sort of group, you know, we became a little group who would often talk to each other and exchange stories and try and support each other. So I think it's an interesting and healthy development. Now, while we've got you here, just to touch on some other topics, if I recall back last September, the reason that you quit the cabinet was because you said the primary aim of Boris Johnson was a no-deal Brexit. But in fact, that turned out not to be the case. There was a Brexit deal, and after a general election, it got passed, and we didn't crash out the EU without a deal. So do you regret quitting over that? No. The point was that I had been told that the no-deal Brexit was like a continuous nuclear deterrent. It had to be there. We hoped not to use it. But in fact, what happened was all the preparation was for no deal. So I felt misled on that. And the specific reason I left that September weekend was the prorogation had taken place and had been called back to Parliament. And the whole handling of the prorogation was a deception from number 10. They briefed that it had been discussed at Cabinet. It wasn't I was told, because I asked for it, I could have the legal advice behind it, had several conversations with the Attorney General about it. They withheld it. And it turned out, of course, to be correct. It wasn't legal. So I felt that the Cabinet was being taken for fools and the no-deal preparation was going full tilt and that I belonged with the tribe of Conservatives, like the then former Chancellor and Lord Chancellor, who were trying to stop no-deal because a deal would be so much better. And so when I basically left Cabinet and joined them, it helped make it clear that Parliament was going to stop no deal. And the Prime Minister kept on saying, we're definitely leaving October 31st, we're definitely leaving October 31st, and Parliament was definitely going to stop him. It was was absolutely nonsensical. And indeed, the Prime Minister could not do no deal because Parliament stopped him. And so he accepted a deal which had been rejected when he'd been in Cabinet (laughs) which put a border effectively down the Irish Sea. And yes, he got a deal. He had to, because Parliament would not allow no deal. And I'm proud to have been part of that. You've had a sort of quite up and down relationship with Boris Johnson over the years. I'm sure listeners with longer memories will remember back in the EU referendum when you commented that Boris Johnson wasn't the kind of person you'd want to drive you home at the end of the evening. And then obviously you served briefly in his cabinet. And I remember during the leadership contest, there was lots of briefing in newspaper reports that there was going to be this Boris Johnson, Amber Rudd dream team as him as the prime minister and you as the chancellor. Was that ever serious talk? Were there ever conversations about that? There were. There were several conversations over the year. And yes, it was sort of dubbed Bamba for about a minute, wasn't it? I remember that, yeah. I think all that meant really was that he wanted me to back him. So Bamba, though it was called, it was definitely him just seeking my support. And in fact, when I went in to get reappointed as Secretary of State for DWP almost a year ago, the first thing he said to me was, what happened to Bamba? And I said, well, I'm here now, Prime Minister. 
And we then went on to have our conversation. And what do you make of his current situation within the Brexit talks? And obviously, we got the withdrawal agreement, but there is no trade deal with the EU. And we're still in stalemate again, it seems, about trying to get that deal sorted. Do you feel there's going to be a deal? Are we going to end up still crashing out in some form later this year? Well, don't forget that people talk about leaving without a deal. We've had a deal. We've left the EU. It's now about the trade deal and other matters. It's nothing like what it would have been leaving without a deal last year. But I feel equally anxious about the negotiations ongoing, that there is an easy approach by the centre of government that deal and no deal are about equal in terms of trade. I think that they are incredibly high-handed with business. And listening to some of the language that comes out of the centre, there's no ongoing analysis of the different pros and cons of types of trade or outcomes or where we should compromise. It's just holding on to the fact that four years ago, people voted for leave the EU and that this government is going to deliver it. I kind of feel it sounds like come what may, as though nobody expects it, even at the centre, to be a success, but it has to be done. So suck it up. When we're recording this, the front page of the FT has got the huge cost that's going to be put on business by the simple fact we're leaving the customs union, the single market. And you could say, well, the British people voted for that in 2016. They voted for again in 2019. But it is an extraordinary change from the Conservative Party you elected into Parliament for, which went out of its way to help business cut red tape. Now you've got a Conservative government that's piling red tape on businesses. I find it absolutely devastating devastating that in a time when we are all so anxious about unemployment, that the government is ploughing on with what it knows, because its own figures show it, and all, almost all business leaders say so, will hurt employment as well. And really, the, the failure of the last government that I was part of was the compromise deal that, as part of Theresa May's cabinet, I tried to deliver. What we tried to do was find a compromise deal where we could deliver on the referendum and try and protect the jobs in the UK. But it wasn't possible because so many of my colleagues in the Conservative Party would only take a hard Brexit. And that is what they're going to get at the end of this year, either the no deal Brexit or the hard deal Brexit. There is no soft Brexit to protect jobs. And I think it is inexplicably sad that the Conservative Party has come to this. And finally, on the last topic, just on a slightly more trickier thing, one of the more difficult periods of your career was during the Windrush scandal, which has had wide-ranging implications for society, the views of the Conservative Party and the government as well. When you look back on that, do you have any regrets over how you handled that situation? I wish I had spotted it earlier and been able to do something about it. It was like a slow-burning disaster that had started in the Home Office Well, it started in the Home Office, even before the Conservatives were in office, but had heated up. And it sort of suddenly grew very quickly into something so enormous. And I was unable to get on top of it, really. But I think it's not about me, really, is what I feel really sad. It's not about me. The fact that I had to resign is immaterial compared to the, you know, the grotesque tragedy that was visited on so many people. And I hope that the Home Office is now able to do the right thing, which is correct that part of our immigration process so that it protects people, stops people falling through the cracks in a way that they did, and looks after them, uh, the people who did suffer as a result of the Windrush scandal, by giving them the compensation. And finally, Amber, 
you've left politics, you've left Parliament for now. Can you ever imagine returning? I can't imagine returning, but I cannot stop watching it carefully. And to my friends who are still in Parliament, admiring them enormously for staying on the battlefield and fighting for what is right. And that's it for this episode of Payne's Politics. Thank you very much again to Amber Rudd for joining us. And if you like this podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find Payne's Politics through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We'll be back shortly with our regular Saturday analysis episode. Paint Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Fiona Simon, Liam Nolan, Josh Delamere, and Breen Turner, with research by George Steer. As ever, thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.